You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast, and tonight we're kicking off the Halloween month by continuing our Based on a Novel series with Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart, and his film adaptation, Hellraiser. You, no trouble. Me, fifth element. You will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death, praying for war. But until that day... You are cute. Sound off like you got a pair. Oh, yes. I was wondering what would break first. Your spirit. Oh, your money. And you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. God is dead. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, yes. Mayor, real wrath of God type stuff. Dead fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me here tonight, Mr. Paul Williams. Hello, hello. Uh, and guys, we're talking Clive Barker tonight. We're going to talk about his novella, The Hellbound Heart, as well as his film adaptation, Hellraiser. Is this the first time you've ever been exposed to The Hellbound Heart or Hellraiser before, Paul? Not the movie. I saw the movie years and years and years ago. Uh, probably early teens. I didn't read the book till till later on. This was definitely the first Clyde Barker book I ever read. Yeah, and you know what? To be honest, though, I really haven't read that much Clyde Barker. I've read this, a couple of the Books of Blood uh, short stories, some of his other short story collections, uh, Cabal, and I mean, really, that's it. I do like his writing, though. Yeah, I, I, I rather enjoy his writing. Cabal, dude, I haven't read that in years. <laughs> But no, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, Clive Barker's, you know, his cinematic work. And really, he's actually only directed three films, and that was Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and Lord of Illusions. Yeah, uh, and no, they're all written and directed by him. Actually, all of them are... Yes. Well, no, I guess one... <laughs> Lord of Illusion is a short story. Uh, I think the short story's Last Illusion. I have not read that, so I don't I don't really know how that is. Um Cabal, yeah. like you said, is Nightbreed, and of course the Hellbound Heart is, uh, is he- got turned into Hellraiser. I'm not 100% sure why... Oh, you know what? I did read why they changed the name of it. It was because some producer on the film thought the Hellbound Heart sounded like a romance novel. Yeah, I don't see that. Or, like, they, they, they not a romance novel, but they were worried about it being like a romance movie. But uh, but, but Clive Barker is a... Um, he, you know, he's not... Not only does he do movies and write screenplays, write novels, but you know he, he also does... Man, some really awesome art, drawings, yeah, paintings. Theater. He did a lot of, lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of theater work. He's kind of in it all. 
He's got his hands in, I feel like, in a lot of stuff, but he does all of it, I feel like, really well. <laughs> you know, yes, like, I agree. Like Stephen King, when, when he does like the Maxim Overdrive thing, and he's like, nobody adapts Stephen King like Stephen King, or whatever that, I forget what that trailer says, but it's ridiculous. Look up the Maxim Overdrive trailer, it's crazy. I mean, but Clive Barker, like, he's an actual, honest to God, good filmmaker. To go from writing a writing a book to directing with no experience, no training, and to do a movie this good is pretty impressive. For the longest time, man, he was he was going around writing uh, the, theatrical plays. He just had like a group of uh, college and, and high school friends. I mean, Doug Bradley, Doug Bradley, uh, the guy who plays Pinhead, pretty much grew up together. They went to school together, and Doug Bradley ended up going on to playing pinhead for a very very long time yeah well that's kind of how a lot of people in this movie. i mean there are some exceptions like you know the makeup the music some some of the editing department there's some things where they brought people in but i mean there are a lot of like regular clyde barker collaborators in, in different mediums and he, he's bringing in an extended family to help him in help him on this oh yeah definitely which definitely. is good i mean you you know you want your friendly faces and people that you trust yeah especially when you're doing something new when Clive Barker, uh, you know, originally envisioned the Cenobites, because, I mean, I know that he had drawn how he wanted all the Cenobites to look and pretty much carried it to the special effects guys and was like, hey, this is what I want. And they looked at him and they said, sir, you're fucked up. We're calling the middle hospital right now and uh, yeah. <laughs> we're turning you in because uh, something's not right with you. There's Cenobites there. They're kind of, kind of a little creepy, man. Not to be confused with those Cinnabuns, which are delicious. Absolutely delicious. Uh, you know what? Why did why did why has a Cinnabun never done like a, a Cinnabun Cinnabite? I need I need a pinhead version of those. Just put like I don't know, little toothpicks and I don't know. You, you can even make them healthy. You can put like a little fruit on top. All right, a little like a grape or something or a blueberry. Make it look all super Cinnabitey. <laughs> the makeup is good in the film, though. Um... You know, uh, not only um, not only just in Hellraiser, but like Pinhead looks pretty good in the series. He definitely looks good for the first three movies. He looks pretty good in the fourth one. After that, I don't know about the quality and the makeup on him. Yeah, it's like the Michael Myers yeah. mask. It's like yeah, part one and two, we're good to go. After that, eh, it's kind of hit or miss how the mask looks. Hellraiser did spawn a buttload of sequels. Oh no, this is a huge franchise, man. There's like what I mean, nine movies? I think the, there's a new one coming out. Um, ten. Hellraiser yeah. Judgment. Yeah, there seem to be ten. And only the first four were, were released theatrically. Everything else was like, oh, direct to video. Even though it was said that Clive Barker only considered the the first three Hellraisers to actually be canon to to what he had created, but I don't know, man. I'd have to say I like uh, I like Bloodline more than I like. Hellraiser 3. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, where one of the Cenobites is like a CD guy and the other one has like a ca- uh, camera, like an old the VHS cameraman. <laughs> camera yeah. where his eye is. Uh, you know, the makeup's not bad in that. I, yeah, I rather like the makeup. I kind of like how it's got that very 90s um, cinematography shine to it. Like their nights are very blue. I, I kind of like that. Yeah. It's of its time period. You know, what are you going to do? But the story is kind of... Really, really stupid in weak. that one. <laughs> really weak. Pinhead and like his other self, like 
I didn't care about the origin story of Pinhead or where he came from. That that never really interests me. Uh, yeah. I know that kind of started with the second one. Like, like that's not something that was just introduced for the third film. Yeah. I just don't really need it. Like I don't need to know that Pinhead was once a man. You know what I mean? Like he can well, just be a, a creature from wherever they're from. I really wish Hellraiser four was Hellraiser three. It is. I mean, it's just such a better movie because. Although you need the you know, third film for that film because that one builds off. I guess you wouldn't have to do that. You could build it off the second one somehow. No, because the third one is kind of like a really. It's it's a sequel, but it's really a prequel, kind of. No, the third one's not a prequel. The third the third one is a sequel. Well, no, no, no. I'm talking about the fourth one. Bloodline. Well, no, just yeah. the just one part of it is. And then, like, yeah. uh, the middle chapter the is, a, is a sequel to part three. Everything else takes place, like, way, way in the future. It's like a, a sequel to every other Hellraiser movie because this one takes place, like, in the year, like, I don't know. It's, like, 21-something. or Yeah, it's, it's a really, really long time in the future. And the, the end's a little ridiculous yeah. where, like, the guy makes a giant puzzle box in space. Not to spoil Hellraiser 4, but we're not, we're not going to review mean, the how- Hellraiser sequels, I don't think. Outside of maybe yeah, the second one. Definitely the second one. You know, but then you got part five was like, was it Inferno with the dude from Nightbreed? You know Scott Dickerson directed that from um, The Day the Earth Stood Still and Doctor Strange fame? Well, I'll The remake damned. to The Day the Earth Stood Still, not the original. Yeah. The sixth one is Hellseeker, which yeah, I don't know Hellseeker. if I've seen that. Yeah, well, you're not, you're not missing very much. Ashley Lawrence was actually in Hellraiser Hellseeker. Well, I'm gonna have to go back and watch Hellseeker. <laughs> Paul's like, I don't, I don't even remember, man. That movie is so terrible. Because I, dude, I haven't seen Hellseeker in a really long time. I have to go back and watch. Man, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think I've seen anything really in its in its entirety after Inferno. I I know I've seen the one with Lance Hendrickson. I've seen a bits and pieces of that, and I saw that the one that isn't with Doug Bradley as Pinhead, where they recast Pinhead. I think it's called Revelations. Which is the, the yeah. last one that was released. And man, I really I really did not like that at all. Kind of garbage. It was it was terrible. It was low budget and you could just tell that if anybody cared in of what they were doing in that film, it did not show in the slightest. <laughs> it looked like it was just a money grab. And when I found out that the only reason the film was made was for the Weinstein company to hold on to the rights for the Hellraiser series did not surprise me. In the least, I, I don't why they don't give. I mean, if you're going to make a film anyway to hold on to the rights, at least give it to a filmmaker that gives a fuck about the franchise, or is and gonna, it's actually going to do something with yeah, it? Yeah, or is at least going to try to make a good movie. Like you may not like Hellraiser Inferno, but at least Scott Derrickson tried to make something interesting in that movie. Yeah, he, yeah, he tried to do something original and and something new. Yeah, you know, and it it's not bad. Like you can sit down and watch Inferno from start to finish, like. Eh, it's not my favorite Hellraiser film, but it's entirely watchable. And the guy that the guy that yeah, the guy that's a cop in that is a total dick. Piece of shit of a human being if there ever was one. Yeah, that's the lead actor from Nightbreed. I really thought he did an awesome job in Nightbreed, man. I I love Craig Schiffer. Man, Nightbreed is oh my god, it's such a good fucking movie. I see that's my least favorite of his movies, man. I think Lord of Illusions is a lot better. I don't know. I, I guess the reason why I like Nightbreed, man, is so much is because like I kind of like the the whole thing of taking 
monsters who are supposed to be, you're supposed to be afraid of them and they're supposed to be terrifying. And then turning around and making the monsters the heroes. That's what we did with Freddy Krueger. That's what we did with Jason Voorhees. Like, yeah, but you didn't really make them the good guys. They were still. No, I mean, killing. they weren't necessarily like the good guys, but that's. We went from being afraid of them to rooting for them to murder teenagers. Yeah, yeah, we did do that shit. No, we're we're talk, talking about those '80s movies and '80s horror. That that is one thing that I think is really interesting about Hellraiser. It, it does stand out. It's really unique. It's very. It's it's really something different. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess seeing Hellraiser for the first time, man, I was just like, wow, this this is a really gory movie, and dealt with a few taboo subjects and. At the time, I really hadn't seen anything like that. I don't know. It, I guess this isn't really body horror, but I guess it is a little body horror in a way. When the guy's being put back together. and I mean, it definitely has some elements of it, for sure. But I, had, I saw this before. I had been exposed to any Cronenberg as well. That may have a little something to do with like how much I respect it for when it came out in its time period. Because Cronenberg was doing things with like Videodrome back in the early 80s um, and yeah. The Brood in the 70s that also touch on things like this. Uh, the Brood especially in terms of like the family unit. Yeah. Like Hellraiser yeah. kind of like focuses on uh, a family's destruction through an extramarital affair. The brood kind of it focuses on divorce and how that splits a uh, family apart. So there's, I mean, there's definitely parallels in other film. It does stand on the sh- shoulder of giants, but there is something also inherently original about this. And speaking of David Cronenberg, David Cronenberg also played as a, played as a character in the movie Nightbreed. Yeah, he's the killer in Nightbreed. Yeah. You you can definitely see. Spoiler like, warning for all the people that are listening to this that have not seen Nightbreed. Well, no, you know, you know, he's the killer in Nightbreed within like uh, ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> that, I don't remember that ever being a surprise. I mean, especially when it's David Cronenberg showing up as the psychiatrist. You're like, oh yeah, of course that creepy motherfucker is going to kill somebody. <laughs> but he, he totally looks like a normal guy. If you saw him on the street, you'd be like, oh look at that sweet silvered hair old man. Well, I mean, damn, dude, if you hear Clive Barker speak in, like, interviews, he's, like, really soft-spoken and shit. Uh, not anymore, dude. Not, not anymore. Not not in the last uh, five or six years, bro. Well, dude, the fucker smokes, like, the hell out of cigars and shit. What are you going to do? Everyone has their vices, you know? Yeah. Can't judge there. Anyway, so we are going to play the trailer, uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the book, Hellbound Heart. And the film is Hellraiser. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker.
Demons to some, angels to others. That was the trailer for Clive Barker's Hellraiser. I guess before the break, I I did bring up um, that I, I I'm, a, I'm a fan of Clive Barker. I like his writing, but man, I you know I like his writing so much. I like his writing style better than Stephen King's. You know, I've gone back and revisited some of Stephen King's you know older writings. Uh, it Cujo, man, I have to say, like the way Clive Barker writes, he just he just writes more like. I speak out loud or even in my head. Yeah, I can see that. I just enjoy the way he writes a little bit more. I like his punctuation. I like the hyphens. I like how he re- he'll repeat things to really get things across. He, he does things in very vivid descriptions, too. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. Uh, and you know, speaking of descriptions, one thing that really just picking up the book, first page, when Frank, I guess the main villain of the piece, he's trying to unlock the puzzle box just like he is in the movie and they start talking about the puzzle box and man i just always remember the puzzle box like from the the poster with pinhead and he's holding the box and it's gold right there on the one sheet and when you're reading the book it is clearly described it's black lacquered finish yes and it's like what wait a minute what is going on here i mean it still has some of the engravings in it and stuff but like there's no gold finish to this puzzle box. It's just a simple black lacquered wooden box. I mean, I just that is like one of the most iconic things from Hellraiser. I mean, it's the box and pinhead. Those those are the two images you remember from this film. And that well, is, that is true. And the hooks too. Well, you know, I I really enjoyed with the book. You got way more of a backstory on the character Frank. Where is in the movie? It, it kind of starts off with a shot. And, yeah, with a sh- yeah, with literally with a shot with him acquiring the box. And in the book, you know, it, it really goes into great detail that you know he goes Sri Lanka and uh, China and Mongolia, doing different jobs and picking up on rumors of. You know where where Le Machon's box could be in the movie. You know the box, or at least Hellraiser. The box doesn't have a name in Hellbound Hard. It's called Le Machon's box, puzzle box. Le Machon. You know they even give a, a brief description of kind of of who Le Machon was. You know now that you brought that up, and you said that Clive Barker only considers the first three films. To be canon when you know they do that prequel and that's pretty accurate to what he's writing about in the hellbound heart like, you know i actually thought the, the same thing the guy's a toy maker <laughs> and he's french just like he is in the book like i don't know I, they expound upon it of course a lot in, the, in that fourth hellraiser movie but i mean it's what's written in the hellbound heart i wish that in the beginning of hellraiser the film that they would have done like a small little montage of you know Frank's character going to these different countries, trying to acquire this box. Man, no, I I think what Clive Barker does with the movie is is the right instincts. He keeps it on the family unit. I would have enjoyed seeing that, and I mean that's one thing that you and I may differ on when it comes to the film. But I I, I guess I would have enjoyed seeing that a little bit. That's just filler, dude. Like that isn't necessary to the story. 
it doesn't matter why the box is there. It doesn't matter who made the box. The box isn't the story. The box is just a MacGuffin that makes bad creatures appear. That doesn't even matter to the story. I mean, the story is really about this woman that cheats on her husband with his terrible brother, Frank, yeah. <laughs> and how that just destroys their whole family. We're going to go a monkey, the monkey's paw route on this. <laughs> what, wait, what, what is Don't that? know where it came from, but it just, it just appeared one day and somebody wanted to sell it to me or give it to me so i just took well no he clearly wants it and he says in the movie like he was he was looking for more but see another thing that that i mean in the book it does like expand upon like how he's man he is so bored with earth and everything on it and oh yeah frank frank is like done dude he feels like he's done every drug that he could do he's had every different kind of woman that he could ever want to have he's been you know, extravagantly wealthy and gutter poor. And, you know, he, he feels like there's nothing in, in the world that could even satisfy him anymore. There is no pleasure that he has never tasted. And man, does he change his mind as soon as he gets those Cenobites around him? He's like, you know what? I, you know, I can just watch the sunrise. That's cool. I guess the big things before we get, like, totally into the movie, I, the big things I wanted to bring up with the book... That are really different because they're, you know, they're pretty much the same. But Kiersey's character in the movie, it's uh, it's Rory's, or I guess Larry. Uh, Rary. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They changed the dad's character. Okay. So Julia is married He's to like Rory. Different. The daughter isn't even the daughter, but the daughter is the neighbor. But then we're not even going to mention that the biggest thing is the damn <laughs> the main character. His name is different. Yeah. Okay. So. Julia is married to Rory, the book, and he his neighbor is, or I guess, or a friend of his is Christy. Because I, I guess she's not really a neighbor. Yes, yeah, I, I mean, I think she is kind of a neighbor. No, because she has to, like, because she walks yeah. there and she doesn't know where she's going to get back yeah. to her place. She's got to walk several blocks, but so she can't really be a yeah, neighbor. In the book, yeah. She... The way the way I I pretty much viewed Christie's character in the book was like this chick that lived down the street that the character Rory had known pretty much his whole life or for a very long time, and she always kind of like had this thing for him, but because of Julia, she felt like she paled in comparison to her in Rory's eyes. Yeah, that's the big thing. She's got a crush on Rory. In the book, it works though. Yeah, I mean, I think it works in the movie too. What do you mean? But in the in the book, it works. You don't like it in the movie? <laughs> yeah, I like I like I like Christie's character in the movie, and I also like Christie's character in the novel too. But I like them both for different reasons, I guess. Well, in the, in the in the movie, they kind of have to they change it. They change her to the daughter in the movie to kind of do a shorthand, so she has a reason for being there, and you can kind of cut out the love triangle because there's already a love triangle with the brother, you know, Frank. So it's like a love square. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need another one or, and somebody else to pine over. It just, it it gets confusing. And for screen simplicity and story's sake, he, he changed it to a daughter. I think it works better. Personally. I like the daughter better. If you've seen the movie before, it will, it'd be like, Oh wow. That's because they don't say that she's a friend right away. <laughs> you know that that's one thing I was reading it because it was like oh yeah she was looking at him with I was like wait a minute that's her dad that's kind of weird what's going on here this is a bizarre family yeah and then it was like and she grew up with and it's like oh okay okay hold up but they're not 
they're just friends. Yeah. <laughs> but when you first turn that page, it's, you know. Yeah, it kind of catches you off guard a little bit. Yeah, if you see yeah. the movie first, yeah, for sure. Another big difference is the, the Cenobites. When Frank actually makes contact with the Cenobites, the, the Cenobites are different. Uh, Pinhead, or what's known as the Hell Priest, because apparently Clive Barker really despises the name Pinhead given by fans. Oh, hold up, though, but yeah, High Priest, that's not in the Hellbound Heart either, though. That yeah. that's not that's not written at all. They're just all called Cenobites. Yeah. One is well, specifically they're, they're, they're called the engineer. The order of the Gesh. Yeah, he does give him an order of Gesh, but none of the Cenobites except for the engineer are ever named. Yeah, that's it. There is no high priest, there's no pinhead. That's all stuff that was made after this film came out. That is true. The one Cenobite, the one female Cenobite, they actually do uh Clyde Barker describes, you know, her as having you know, a grid of pins in her head, and her tongue is full of pins. Yeah, she's actually the pinhead one. Pinhead's actually a female yeah. in the book. Yes. You know, one thing that I thought was really interesting that, that I actually found a little bit more interesting about the, the book than than the film, when when Frank is actually describing what happens when he opens the box... What? No, I thought you that know, was that was pretty similar. I thought they adapted that to film. It was pretty similar, but as I mean, accurately like as they could. Man. You do have to realize that Hellraiser was a low-budget movie. It was made by Roger yes, Corman, dude, I in know. Britain. So, I know that. I know. Like, I know that. Clyde Barker had a million dollars, and for a million dollars... He did a pretty damn, a he damn good job. He put everything that he could possibly put on screen. I mean, really, like even the resurrection of Frank, that wasn't that wasn't even going to be included in the original movie because they just couldn't afford it, and it wasn't until after they yeah, and I almost feel like almost more, feel like they went back been, and paid for that, you know. Well, I almost feel like it would have been a little bit easier to do it the way it was it was described in the in the novel because in you know in the novel Frank was no, actually in the wall, that, dude. No, you need that scene in that movie, man. That's that's like. That's the most memorable scene in the entire film. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I do agree with that. I, I will agree with it. I mean, that's that's why you make a movie, man, to make it cinematic. I mean, because in the novel, when he comes back, it's just like a an apparition. It's a, like a ghost appearance. Like his first appearance, he doesn't stay there until like she actually, Julia brings up um, other people to, to murder in the attic. In the book, it describes that, you know, and I thought this was kind of like a little weird. You know, when Frank opens the box, he gets like this absolutely sensory. It's like a sensory overload kind of. And he, and he gets like, all over the floor. Yeah, and he just like just pulls it out and just starts fapping away. You know, and, yeah. <laughs> and that's the that's the actual reason he comes back is because yes, he, <laughs> which is actually really kind of I would say is it's hilarious. It's more, he is it's, brought it's back via sperm. Yeah, and and his brother's blood. I mean, it's you know, it's how you're brought into this world in the first place. It's how you're brought back in. Just throw a little blood on it, baby. We're good to go. It'll get you yeah. out of. Well, you know, okay, this is called the Hellbound Heart, but they this isn't actually hell. They don't actually take them to hell. It's like a different dimension. They don't a actually take plane. them. Yeah, like maybe that's what humans what we perceive as hell, but it's this, they're not actually devils. These are different beings that. Uh, kind well, they referred to as, they referred to as demons. The demons to some, yes. I mean, like, the they don't call themselves demons, but I mean that's the thing. Like they're very like vague with their torture in the book. Like, are they torturing Frank, 
or are they just giving him a lot of pleasure? But it's so much pleasure. See, that's another thing, though. I feel like that he can't handle in it. The book they hit they hit more on pleasurable torture. Yeah, because in the movie they just rip you apart with chains. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in the in the book, it's it's described as like because even one of the Cenobites basically tries to pretty much kind of throw herself at Frank. See, that's the thing. Why do these? Why do the Cenobites want people? Because I guess they have nothing else better to do. I mean, like, I mean, don't I understand that they could torture the souls that they already have. I mean, like, I like in the movie. I've, that's one thing. It, it is kind of questioning. Like, why do they come? Like in the book, like at least he's bringing offerings. He's giving them something, and he's like, "Hey guys, please just take me to your awesome world." He gets there, and he's like, "This world sucks. It's not awesome at yeah, all." Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty much the same thing that happens in Event Horizon. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> I do prefer Julia's weapon of choice in the movie over her weapon of choice in the book. What is it? The hammer versus butcher knife? Which is it? Butcher knife. Hammer versus butcher knife. Yeah. She uses the hammer in the in the movie. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I like the hammer. Hammer's fun. It just makes more sense for a dainty, pampered trophy wife who's an absolute coward. I don't know. She may, know, have, a, wife, she may man, have a little a like. Just kind of like so personal. She does have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. Like she's kind of like raped, and she's raped in both the book and the movie. And in the book, they do well, a, a good really job. Raped? No, shoot. No, 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 no. No, in the book, they straight up call it rape. They straight yeah, say they- it is like he forces himself on her, and then afterwards has like these yeah. real fucked up memories where she remembers it better than it actually was. But in the movie, he's cutting her bra off with a f- uh, fucking switchblade. I know where the book is supposed to take place, but where exactly was this motherfucking movie supposed to take place? Because you got the damn movers who are obviously American. They obviously moved from Brooklyn. They moved from Brooklyn, but the movie doesn't say where it is, but you can clearly tell it's London. It's a little confusing in the film because it's like some of these actors have American accents and some of them have British accents. I know exactly where you wanted to go with the bringing up the British thing is Frank is dubbed. Is dubbed, yeah. Yeah, his 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 voice is completely dubbed over. Now, I always thought it was because the actor that plays Frank in this skin suit throughout the movie is a different actor. I, that's why I thought they dubbed him. And I was actually reading because... There were so many British accents throughout the movie that the producers were like, look, we got to we got to make some of these guys American. I was like, what? I I always thought it was to get the voice the same because you have different actors playing the same character. So, yeah, you have to dub one of them. And I'm assuming they probably went with the uh, skin suit actors voice. No, no, dude, it's, it's neither one of them. I don't even know. I have no idea who the. Oh, damn. Yeah, I have no idea who does the voice for Frank. If I find it on Google, hey, I'll put it in the show Julia. notes. It's me. It's Brother Frank. You got some coffee? Oh, Brother Frank. He just shows up and just gets all rapey right away. Let's let's switch over to the film. Roger Corman did the movie. It was, it was actually the same company that... Uh, oh, fuck, what was the company formed? New World Pictures. That's what it was. The same guys that did Godzilla yeah. 1985, which the guy that did the scenes... For the American reshoots for Godzilla in 1985, he actually directed the sequel, Hellraiser, uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Isn't that insane? 
Look at that Godzilla connection. That is insane, my man. Well, I mean, they were both New Worlds, so. Clive Barker does make a comment on the commentary about the the character Larry, uh, Andrew. Andrew Robinson. Was it was a little bit difficult to work with. Yeah, he did make a yeah, he did make a little comment on that comment <laughs> about that. But you know, he did make a good point with that afterwards about like he was a first-time yes, director did. and he really realized that actors need any confidence and support built up in their performance. I mean, which is very true because I mean, if you think yes. about it from Andrew Robinson's perspective, he's an experienced actor, he's going to across the pond over to Britain to these crazy insane essamin horror guys like who knows what these brits are doing over here yes it's yes, low that, budget that is, that is very true and and honestly i think that maybe he ended up helping you know clive out a little bit in the process yeah he improved a lot of lines you know i i will say he did he did a phenomenal job the only thing is man it's like the actress that played julia oh claire higgins she yeah, Claire Higgins, it's like, from the minute you meet her, you're just like, this chick is just straight high maintenance. Oh, dude, she's, I think she's the best one in the movie. She is really, really fucking terrific. <laughs> she is a great, like, you know, man, I kinda, I, evil stepmom. I kind of had a little bit of a, I kind of had a little bit of a crush on Ashley Lawrence though, back in the day. It's her first movie, though, and she just has some moments that you can kind of tell, like, you know that scene when and she she goes in to make coffee, and like I don't know what happens to the water spigot, but water starts the the faucet like explodes and water starts Just shooting everywhere. all over. You know, yeah. and her reaction yeah. to that and what she's doing with her hands. I don't know. Just go watch that scene, and you'll know what I mean. Like we just like look at the body language. It's yeah. just weird. There's another scene towards the end of the movie where she's standing on the landing at the top of the stairs, and she's just. Standing there for like a good forty-five seconds, just crying. Oh wait, are you talking about right before she like goes and hides in that back room? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was after. No, it was after that. Oh yeah, okay, directly after that. Fuck, was the point in that? Why they're trying to build tension, man? With that, and you're not building tension by that. But you're you're fucking. That's not her fault. That's that's just like a. I do. I can t- I, look. You know what? I can tell you just by looking at that. Here's what happened. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Clive Barker and the cinematographer they covered that action from that one fucking angle, and we they yep. got in the edit room and they needed another shot to cut to. They didn't have one, so they just had to let the fucking action play yep. in that shot until Frank came in, and then they could cut. Because when he came in, that's when they got the close up. That is true. I mean, and you're probably you're you're probably pretty. On that. Dude, look, trust me. Uh, shooting in real locations, which this film did, like the house. This is not a film set. The only t- the only film yeah, set rented, that's ever used. They apparently rented the house. I believe the house was demolished like shortly after the filming of the movie. Yeah, and then the only set that's ever used is uh, when they have the makeup stuff up in that one attic set, or I guess it's not an attic, but it's the that top room that Frank pops out in the damp room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how it's described in the, uh, in the book. Or do they, do they say that in the movie? I don't think they do. Do they? Larry makes a comment at one part of the movie about the dampness in the room. Yeah. Okay. That's right. But in the book, they actually like go out of the way or the novella, whatever they call it. Yeah. They, they like, they dub it. The damp the, room. The room. Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's the, the it's the biggest room in the house, and they want to move into it. But you know, Julia's like, no, no, no. I got your brother in there that I want to slowly put back together so I can have sex with later. And, dude, like, I mean, come on, let's let's talk about the makeup here, man. The transformations of Frank, like when he first comes out of the floor. I mean, dude, I love that. You know, once again, this movie was a little appalling the first time watching it. You know, now when I watch it, I'm just like. I'm not really grossed out at all by it or appalled by it at all. I'm more like amazed by it because all of that was done in reverse. Well, I mean, well, not all of it. Um, well, yeah, I'm floored by the creativity in the special effects. Like when you have a werewolf and you have a vampire, we know what those look like because those are creatures that people have written about and talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years. So yeah, when you get to a scene in a film where you have something like John Carpenter's The Thing, and they're like, yeah, it's this crazy tentacle monster, and it transforms, and then you watch that film, and you see the makeup effects, you're like, wow, this is a, this is a really creative way to show all that. The way Frank pops out of the floor and gets brought back together from nothing, the way these two stalks just appear out of goo Yeah, they just the kind floor. of pop out of the floor and hook over and put their you know, the feet on well, the floor well, and that, kind of exactly. fry that's, itself up. That's what you think they are when you see them, right? They, they look like feet coming out. And you're like, oh, this is going to be something. Oh. But no, it's his hands. That is such an awesome reveal, dude. And then, like, you, you don't realize it's, it's, it's his hands until the brain starts forming. Two or three ribs in his spine. It is described in the novel like that, but it's... It's just so much, it's shortened so much for the movie. I also like his other different forms in the movie too. Like when he, he appears later on, like after he's out of the floorboards and kind of fully transformed, he's really skinny. His lips are all dry. He looks like a brown maggot man. And then when we get to the, the pre-final form, like we're talking about a Japanese anime, uh, of Frank. <laughs> Wait, was it a? Was, did you just make an Attack on Titans reference there? <laughs> yes, I sure damn did, sir. I, I surely did. I got that one. All right, cool. Thank you. I'm here all night. And, but, you know, uh, I did. I, I was thinking about that too when I saw, when I saw the movie <laughs> this time. I was like, oh man, I wonder if they they totally thought of Hellraiser. It does, they doesn't it? That. Like Frank looks like human version of one of the Titans. Oh, yeah, the giant colossal titan that comes at the beginning of the anime show. The one that's just like, yeah, bone and skin and bone and sinew and shit. Dude, I bet you they were watching Hellraiser where they were animating that. They had to have. But, yeah, I mean, that's he pretty much looks like that, which is is really cool because, once again, when I was younger watching this, I was like, that's kind of a little vile. You know how they how they got the 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 like the muscle to glisten and move, and you could just see like fragments of the jaw bone, and you know or the mandible bone, and be, bits and pieces of of skeletal structure here and there. You know another another good example would be like you know the the freaking models that they show to you in high school of like what you would look like with no skin. Oh yeah, 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 totally. You, you're talking about it look, looking gross and like glistening, and you can really, yeah. I don't know, you really see the slime on the suit that this guy's got on. And when Julia like takes 
Frank's finger, and she's like, oh, yeah, you're almost made, and he grabs at her boob, and she, you know, at first she's kind of like, no, but then she takes his finger yeah. and puts it in his mouth, I'm just like, oh, it's so gross. But did you also notice that that looks like a regular skinned finger, too? I don't mean, like, a skinned finger, like, there's no skin on it. It looks like a finger with skin on it. What? No, I thought it looked like a... Dude, no, 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 go back and watch it. Because trust me, I watched it, rewound it, and watched it again. That's a normal-looking hand that she puts in her mouth. Really? Yes. You're not thinking of it like when she does it? No. In the flashback? No. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at that because I did not know. In the scene where Frank is wearing the suit? The skeleton suit. No, I mean, like, he's actually wearing clothes at this point in time in the movie. Okay, you know, I, I know, I know what you meant. When you, when you said suit, I thought you meant, like, the makeup suit. Sorry. Which I think is still the way the wrapping is done in the second one is more accurately described to the book. They you Remember, she, she wraps Frank up in, like, bandages. Oh, in the book. that's right, and Julia is wrapped up in the, uh, in the second movie. Second one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yes, I thought. I, I, thought no, I totally forgot gonna... about that in the second film. Because remember when she's like sitting there fucking kissing the doctor in the second one, and it's just like, ugh. Her scene, I, ah. that is one of the grossest scenes, man, I have it's ever seen is when, when she comes back. Nasty. And the doctor gives the, the crazy. Yes. The crazy girl, yes. or the, no, it's a guy. She He gives this crazy guy yeah, who thinks he sees dude. bugs all over him. A bugs all over him and shit. Yeah. And he starts cutting himself up. And that, oh, dude, it's horrifying because you actually, like, it goes into his POV. So you see these bugs on him, and that is nasty. And you see him cut the bugs, and then it goes into reality of him just cutting himself. Oh, that is horrifying. Yes, very much so. I, I remember that being, like, one of the most disturbing scenes. I, yeah, there's nothing in this movie that even comes close to that. that. Yeah, to that graphic <laughs> level of that. Yeah, that's that's truly yeah. gory. Which I don't, I don't really understand the dream sequence with with Christy. Like, I, I really kind of don't get that. I mean, maybe you're throwing it in there that she's having a premonition or something. I mean, I just don't really get that. It adds that you know that little supernatural flavor to it, where. She and it also, you know, involved, brings a bond with daddy's little girl. And really, the whole scene exists so that Frank knows that Kirstie is back in the house. I yeah. mean, he could have done it through a different way, but I do I do like the dream sequence. It adds a supernatural flavor to it. I do want to delve into this a little bit, like why I do like the change of Christie from the novel to the film. When Frank makes his advances at Christie in the in the book it's just like yeah it's 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 kind of creepy when you change that character to being his niece like you just took the creepy level from 50 to like 50 million come to daddy you know yeah it's 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 <laughs> so creepy and it's like that okay i understand that you know to a point i can agree with you when you say that you like the change in the character going from being the the kind of dowdy, you know, plain Jane neighbor to the daughter to the daughter. Yes. But I mean, then at the same time, though, Chrissy kind of loves Rory, but Rory loves Julia and Julia loves Frank. And it's like it's just so much more simplified by putting 
Christy is the dog. Okay, well, I guess my problem in the book, the Hellbound Heart, Christy pining over Rory, the only reason she's doing it is so that she can be in the story. You know what I mean? Like, don't do anything yeah. else with it. It's yeah, only there just so she can be there. So it's like, why not just make her the daughter? Then she just automatically has a reason that we just accept better. Yeah, because she is the child. Yeah, if you're not going to do anything with it, I feel like the movie, they give her something to do in the daughter role. There's one scene that really, I think that it's good in the book, but it translates so much better in the movie is when Rary calls Christy out to the Chinese restaurant and they're sitting there eating. And he said, you know, he's like, you know, Julie's been acting really strange. Can you go by and check on her sometimes? I mean, that, that pretty much happens in, you know, exact in the book too. Well, in the book, it makes um, it look like a jealous peeping Tom. Yes, yes. I don't like that. Obsessive stalker type? Yeah, it makes it look bad. When In the movie, it's like, okay, look, it's her daughter. She's looking out for her pop. Anyone would do that. Okay, yeah. Everybody okay, loves the daddy, right? If he's not an yeah, asshole. Explained, yeah, exactly. Explained earlier in the, in the, in the film, uh, because you have this whole really weird fucking scene with the two moving guys. Oh, what do you mean weird? I like that scene. That's a good comedy Dude, that, break, and it's got a serious moment a in it. a little bit of a good comedy break, but it's just like, goddamn, this like this dude's straight up a horn dog. Well, no, it's He's good, like, man, because it, they they let you know right away that Julia's the evil stepmom because they had that awesome exchange where, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, the horny guy's do. like, yeah, not only is your wife hot, your daughter's hot. And then and your husband's a man, bitch. And then Andy Robinson is just like straight up like, hey, look, that's not her mother. Her mother's dead. What do you think about that shit? Yeah, until he broke that dude off like that. And you're like, well, damn. I love damn, the reaction Mary. shot because the other mover. <laughs> the, he's like the just laughing dude. with the beer in his hand. Like, you <laughs> exactly. <dick. laughs> yeah, he's got that beer in his head. The way he's laughing and looking at him. I love it. Oh, it's such a good reaction. He shot. just buries his head in the mattress. <laughs> man that's a good moment and dude this is from a first time director too and it's got these nice little these nice little flourishes of of character moments and just in the movers and like look, look we're talking about the movers dude they're in one scene and you know Doug Bradley the guy who's gonna play Pinhead he was actually gonna play one of those movers because he wanted his face on screen oh really yeah like dude outside of Clive Barker who is the most iconic person from the Hellraiser series yeah, that's Doug Bradley, true. right? But yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, kind of going into, into Julia's character. But I, I, I feel like her character, I feel like her cowardness is portrayed a little bit more in the novel than it is in the film. You know, in both the movie and the book, I feel kind of like, yeah, she's evil. She's got some misplaced ideas, but I don't, I don't completely lose all faith in her. Until, like, you know, like, maybe she can have some kind of redemption, maybe at the end of the story, somehow, if it wasn't for the fact that she murders Andy Robinson. Rory or Larry, whichever version Larry. you're watching of this. Uh, Larry, that's right. <laughs> Whatever. Rary. Yeah. When yeah. Regardless, they skin the shit out of Rary and give the skin to Frank. Yeah, like, they skin the dad. Like, what is but, going on but. here? But before this, Christy actually has a run-in with Frank in both the book and in the movie. Christy gets her hands on the wooden box or 
shiny golden what looks like it belongs in an Egyptian museum box that we all love to come and know. She makes a deal with the Cenobites. You even pointed out, like, at this point in time, like, as you were talking about the bells that Frank describes in the beginning of the book, and then they're described again when Christy opens the box, that the box itself has this little chime, and the chime has to do with the configuration of the puzzle. Yeah, each piece you solve, like, adds another instrument to the song. Yeah, and adds another note. Yeah, Yeah. and you know what? To be honest with you, I always thought that chime diddy when the box was being opened, I just thought that was a piece of music. I had no idea <laughs> yeah. that that was supposed to be from the box. I mean, this was a low-budget movie, but like, dude, well, the sound well, design. Hold on. I mean, it's mono hold sound, on now. but they could have done you, something in, in the sound mix to make that sound like it was coming from the box just a little bit better. They did. Did they? Yes, they totally did, dude. The scene where Christy is sitting on the fucking hospital bed and she opens the box and the little blue orbs and shit are no, going no, no, around no, no, the no, box. No, 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 That's just a visual thing. But, like, you don't know that that music is Yeah, but is you hear actually... the music there. You hear the little tune there. There's no way to know that that music is actually coming from the box. It doesn't sound like it is. It just sounds like it's a theme when okay. the box is open. You know, every you. every character has a theme in a movie. Like they show up, and you get your theme. Like James Bond shows up. So when the box opens, it's got its whatever. Exactly right. So so when the box opens, that's the theme for it. That's what I always thought when I read the novel. <laughs> it was like, oh wait a minute, no, the box is actually making that noise. I don't think that comes through in sound design, dude. I mean, what did you th- when you first watched this movie? Did you think the box made that noise? Did I remember? No, the, no, the bells. Like I always like because Frank looks up when they when they do the bells. I yeah. always th- thought that was like okay, these guys these guys are coming in, and they do like the light motifs where the lights are coming through the the boards in the wood. And man, they do this really cool thing with the bricks that steam in the hospital with Christy. Yeah, in the movie, when, uh, before the wall, before the wall opens up. Yeah, and Christy's deal with Pinhead. Practically, this is pretty much exactly the same in both the novel and the film. You open a box, here go a bunch of demons. Like, okay, hey, wait a minute, guys. Did, by any chance, did this Frank guy? Well, hold on. This is one thing I don't understand. My uncle about was that. not skinless earlier, so I'm just saying. Yeah. you're the second weirdest thing I've seen all day. <laughs> so, do you know? This you know, guy? I'm just gonna put two and two together, and hope I get four. Well, dude, look, I'd be doing that. I would, I would literally do the same thing. It would probably take me five minutes longer to get to that conclusion, and I would already be off into whatever dimension that these Cenobites go to. See, but, and that's why you wouldn't survive the Cenobites <laughs> and Christy did. But no, I mean, okay, she is a little unrealistically fast on the draw. I'll give you that. But, I mean, it makes sense, though, like, logically yeah, speaking. Does. I mean, the whole reason she's in the hospital is because she saw a skinned dude. Like, the guy has no fucking skin. And she and lost her he was mind. her uncle. And he was like, come to daddy. Well, she she saw another guy get murdered, too, I guess. that. Yeah, she did see, see the one dude get killed. And then she saw Skin Man Frank. Or, or Muscle Man Frank. Okay, so she saw more than just... Yeah, but that's a lot to see in a day. <laughs> that, <laughs> if I saw that in, in my life, I would be like, wow, that's hands down the most interesting thing I've seen today. Or ever. 
So say say you 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 ran across your skinned uncle. All of a sudden, he's trying to like hurt you. You found a box, and he just stops in his tracks, and then you end up with said box. Why would you even fuck with it? Furthermore, why would you walk into a hallway well, that just opens for messing with said box? I don't know. Okay, so in, in the very very beginning of the movie, Frank is given the box. He walks away, and the guy goes, "Take it. It's yours." And Frank takes the box, and he leaves. The Asian man sitting at the table goes, it always was. And it's like, oh, that's ominous. That's very ominous. I kind of always feel like the box is calling to any curious person. At least from the movie. The book actually loses me here on this one. Why? Well, in the book, they go out of their way to say how people search for this box their entire lives. And some people never find it. Yeah. and then this one girl just gets lucky enough to find it, and she wants to open it, and she opens it up in one hour or two hours in a hospital. Which like, further and, makes even you – know, okay, and, I got and, you on that. You know Which what I mean? makes like, even less the, sense when you go into Hellbound. In Hellbound, she acts like she can't even figure out the box because they got to get the other little girl. I'm throwing that movie out. I'm not even talking about that one right now. <laughs> He's like, I'm not even going to think about that right now. Yeah, that, that's too much. I can't do book, movie, and sequel. Um <laughs> That's way too much. Yes, you can. I don't know. It's it's a little confusing in the in the book, but the movie, I I kind of I just I go with it. You know, it's like the box calls. No, to I, curious I, I mean, people. from what I understand, I guess a person would have to have a certain degree of an infatuation with. Well, in the book, I think the paragraph even starts off with like, if there had been uh, a picture or a television or something in the room. She may have not picked up the puzzle box, but there was nothing there. You know what I mean? I don't know. But then the damn movie, they got the damn TV on and the nurse is sitting in there and there's like this weird. And what the hell is up with that? It's like this. They're just, well, they're just doing that for just blooming flowers. I like to make fun of, you know, things like that. That it's like, what is this here? What is this channel that's showing flowers? Because I mean, the TV's showing that before she ever does pick up the box. You're right. And, I don't know. You Welcome know, like back. maybe maybe that's what they did in, in, in the eighties in Britain in the psychiatric ward. I don't know. Today we're gonna show you red blooming puppies. <laughs> it is weird. It is bizarre. Before we get into the ending of the book, I want to talk about the ending of the film here real quick. Uh a lot of people give the ending wow. of this movie shit. How Frank's gets Frank gets dealt with and the whole house starts falling apart. And some people really hate this section of the movie. I man, I totally disagree. I love okay. how this film ends. Jesus wept. What do you mean, Jesus? Yeah, wept? I thought. I thought you didn't, you didn't like. I Jesus thought that wept? looked. I no, I thought that looked fucking amazing. But like after that, like it doesn't really make much sense. The house kind of catches on fire, burns down. You're not a fan of this. No, not especially. Yeah, the scene when the the house is burning down and the boyfriend comes in, the other guy character, I don't really know who the fuck he is. He's not even in the novel, but he's in the movie. I think he's in the novel scene, for one scene. Yeah, for one scene. The dinner the it. dinner party scene. Uh, and yes. that, that scene's in the movie, too. It's where he does that cigarette flip trick. Yeah, flip trick. You know what that means. Uh, dude, is, is that a turn on? I don't know. Maybe in mid-19, late. 1980s it was a thing but watching it now it's like damn dude you could burn the shit out of the roof of your mouth if you fuck that up 
the whole scene isn't isn't that bad. No, I, I I don't have a problem with it until the scene after the house kind of collapses and burns down. And as a matter of motherfucking fact, yes, I do kind of have a little bit of a problem with that because that just that just creates a big ass conundrum for fucking hellbound. Or what part? Okay, well, if the damn house burns down and collapses, how the fuck did they just manage to salvage one mattress? That mattress would have went up like a damn matchstick. I don't know. It collapsed, man. I mean, I, I, to uh, me, it, it felt more collapsy than than on fire. I mean, it was on fire, dude. It was on fire. Was it? You don't yes. really get a shot with the house on fire. It's on fire. I mean, you you get the picture on fire. And you get like the house like breaking apart and kind okay, of like, there's a damn fire in the house and the house is collapsing. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't oh. know. The Matrix could have survived, but you know, I don't know. I like, <laughs> like all this stuff. A lot of people are like, I don't like the box being put back together and the, the Cenobites having to go back in the box. Ashley Lawrence yeah, that, Christie's that... character is kind of running around the house and she's, she's solving pieces of the box and she's putting pinhead and, the female Cenobite and the Chatterer Cenobite and the the fat Butterball Cenobite. She's putting Butterball. all of them back. Yeah, right? <laughs> Who takes his glasses off and you see they're all so fucking sewed shut. Oh, weird ass eyes. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. But she's putting all of them back in. And to me, I don't know. That kind of – in film logic, I buy it and I don't question it. Yeah, it's magic. You take it apart and solve the puzzle. It brings them out. And you solve it again, and it takes them back in. I mean, to me, it works. That 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 is one thing. Like, why do this? I guess because the Cenobites are bad guys. But why do they want to take Christie at the end? Yeah, in the book, once she gives uh, this order of the Gish or the Cenobites, once she gives the gives them Frank, they pretty much are just like she has a run in with the engineer. I mean, pretty much they they leave her alone in the book. There's like these monsters that are kind of like uh, in the shadows that she's always yeah. worried about that she can't really see. And she's worried about like hands grabbing at her and they're not the Cenobites. Mm-hmm. There's like, it, it's just other monsters that are around. And I guess that's what they do in the movie with that scorpion creature who like kind of pops up at the end at the doorway in the film. Yeah. I always thought that was the goddamn engineer again that they threw in. In the book, Kirstie's leaving the house and, she feels like it's getting sucked up, but when she leaves, it's completely fine. And she bumps into a person, and she turns back and looks at him, and she sees that it's the engineer from the other world. And when she looks down, she has the box in her hand. Yep. And he kind of, like, passes her the box to give to somebody else. Like, she becomes the inheritor of the box. So the bestowed. The, um, and she yep. looks into it, and she... She sees the reflection of Frank and Julia. Clive Barker does this great thing at the end, man. And she thinks that if this one puzzle box right here can lead to Frank coming back in the world, then then she can somehow maybe bring back Rory into this world. You know, Andy Robinson's character, and she can reunite with him. Even if it's through a crossword puzzle. And it's this cool, weird, uplifting, hopeful moment. But at the same time, you know, you know that that's a bad thing. Yeah, it's got kind of a pet cemetery vibe to it. But no, I mean, the way he writes about it, though, it it makes it uplifting to me. I don't know. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. Like, if, if yeah. you can find the gates to hell, maybe you can find the gate to heaven. Or maybe that was the whole, maybe that was the whole point all along. 
Yeah, that is kind of hinted at that, like, you know. Even, you know, Pinhead says it in the movie. He says a line that's some, something along, like, we are, we are the bringers of pleasure to some and pain to others. Say, well, like, the box, uh, you know, has this kind of duality to it where it's like, we can give you unimaginable pleasure and, and, you know, in paradise, or we could give you the most brutal tortures of hell. All right, guys. So I think that's, uh, that's Hellraiser right there. And Hellbound Heart. Paul, final thoughts. Uh, can you say about the book and the film? Yeah. I love the film because the film I saw first. And the film kind of was what introduced me to Clive Barker. Reading the book, there are things that I really do enjoy more about the book than I do the film. With that, with that being said, I think both of them are great literary and film pieces of art. It's a great story. Um, it's a story about love and betrayal and, uh, you know, the afterlife or other dimensions. I mean, there's so many things to be said that are that are just great about this film that I feel like certain people, as in film critics like Roger Ebert, decided to absolutely trash and shit on because they didn't really understand it. And guys, we will put. I'm sorry to interrupt here, Paul, but yeah, guys, we're we'll make sure that we put Roger Ebert's um links in the show notes to his review because that is that's something to read. His review is terribly misguided. Which is even more fucked up because it takes us, he even kind of like throws a little mud at Stephen King, you know, in that because Stephen King wrote, you know, a quote for Hellraiser saying, I've seen the new face of horror and that face is Clive Barker. To me, I mean, a lot of people respect him. To me, that's just such an uppity dick move. I don't don't think that makes him a dick. I just think that he was wrong when, about no, when this. it comes to when it, he was when wrong it about this, this one thing he was totally wrong about this one thing i agree with that because there's there's so much more substance to this than just the gore the horror elements to it there's there's a deeper story there you know there's the deeper story of what what people you know what characters like julia will go through to receive some kind of excitement and enjoyment in her life and rory he just chases the He's the damn cat chasing his tail all day for a woman who doesn't care about him. And then, you know, it's it's the same way with Christy in the book where she's just chasing after Rory. But at the end of the day, it's 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 a bit of a tragic story that, like you said, at the end is uplifting. But I feel like both the book and the movie are justifiable to the overall story. Well, the movie is justifiable to the overall story of the book. And I thoroughly enjoy them both. Oh, you know what? We didn't talk. <laughs> we didn't talk about that stupid uh, demon skeleton. Um, the the homeless guy that goes around eating the bugs. <laughs> Man, we don't even need to talk about that shit because that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, okay, the effects. But we can. The, the effects. We can. By, the, <laughs> The effects by Bob Keane, he he did a great job. But man, like literally, they ran out of money at the end of the shoot. They didn't reshoot this, and yeah, it, it, it looks a little bad. It does look bad. I mean, like they had no okay, money. Okay, so wouldn't, wouldn't have they had no money to make the... this, man. And it it does it look. I couldn't do that for no money. But wouldn't the wouldn't the 
the simpler and cheapest way to do this was to not go with some fucking stupid over-the-top Hollywood budget and yeah. just ended you know, like I, it ended in the book. I, I, yeah, I kind of feel like it, they almost should have just like, yeah, had had that homeless guy like bump into her, give her the box, and the movie been done. Like she defeats the bites, the box disappears, her and homeboy, a couple weeks later, are walking around, bumps into the, to the homeless dude, Gives it a box and boom. Christopher Young. This is probably my favorite score of his. He's done a lot of the Sam Raimi ones. I think we talked about him. Um, yes. On uh, Drag Me to Hell. Um, yes, he, we did. He did the score for that. Man, he's he's done the Spider-Man movies. He's done a lot of great, great stuff. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal composer. Literally, if you're a found, fan of soundtracks, this is one that moves along. The Hellbound Heart is a terrific book. It really is. If you're a fan of the Hellraiser movie, it's a very similar story, but there's so much that's changed, and there's so much you can go into in a book, into a character's thoughts, that give a lot more fat to chew on, a lot more food for thought here. There's a whole chapter where Frank is in Pinhead's dimension with these Cenobites and his experiences and what he can see and what he can feel and think. And, oh, man, it's, dude, it's crazy. And, guys, it's it's a really, really short book. I mean, it's something you can easily finish. I started this at 7. Man, I, w- I was done by – I was done before 1130. And the film, Clive Barker, is very impressive. Not only can he write. And I really respect writers because that is a skill I do not possess at all whatsoever. But the fact that I can enjoy his writing and that he is this good of a filmmaker and that I like every single one of his films and he's only made three. I love his artwork. I mean, what can Clive Barker not do? This franchise means a lot to horror. This is a big franchise. I mean, there's a reason that we're doing this as our first Halloween movie. Guys, this is this is a huge, huge film. If you're a horror fan, you absolutely owe it to yourself to see Hellraiser. If you don't, you cannot call yourself a horror fan. All right, guys, so you've been listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Um, If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, and crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, extra E at the end of crew, at gmail.com. Paul, where can people follow you, sir? Uh, You guys can follow me at... Paul R. Williams, J1, at Twitter. And you guys should also check out our uh, our musical maestro here on the show, on Twitter, at Aquarius Weapon. And you also can check him out on YouTube. And like always, we're going to close out with a little bit of the score. Tonight is no exception. We're going to play Christopher Young's amazing theme from Hellraiser. Enjoy.
was the goddamn geese. Dude, those geese are that loud by your house? Yeah. Okay, they're gone now. Damn, bro. That's some geese right there. Anyway, okay. 